Making this connection of your surroundings and the food that you grow, that you eat, it really shapes you. And uh, and so you, you think about all of those things, the, the water you drink, the air you breathe. And so you realize that you have a responsibility to take. Guitar, a podcast that focuses on interesting conversations with inspirational people around guitar. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode on Candid Guitar. My name is Natasha and I'll be your host today. Joining me today is Katrin Scholzwath, who's incredibly impressive. She is a mom, she's a businesswoman, she's an environmentalist, and she's the president of Sustainable Qatar. So please help me welcome her today. Thank you for joining us, Katrin. Thank you, Natasha, for having me. It's a pleasure to join you and be with you here. Thank you. So first things first, how are you doing? We're good. Thank you very much. Um, all things considered, we're actually in good health, in good spirits. And, and so that's a good starting point. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, how is everything with COVID and how are you managing? Thanks for asking. It's been quite the year, mostly because also um, our son just graduated from high school and uh, and we launched him so sex successfully into college life in New York. So I traveled with him, which was quite a bizarre experience to be masked and shielded throughout the flight and uh, being in empty airports. You know, it uh, was quite challenging. But work-wise, it somehow has really intensified um, all of our purpose because we see COVID as part of the work that we do. It is an outcome of how we have been treating the environment. So <laughs> we we are paying a steep price for that. And I think we are at a time in history where it's important to really see the urgency of what every individual can do to help change that and pull things around. I think we have the potential and that's how I wake up every morning as an eternal optimist to make things work and better. That sounds wonderful. So let's just get right into it with your story. Could you tell us more about your background and your childhood? I have usually two ways to introduce myself. You mentioned already mom and uh, businesswoman and environmental activities, um, which we get to later. Also, I grew up in former East Germany. I'm a, um, competitive, I'm a competitive swimmer and uh, bricklayer. And that by itself tells you three things about myself. As a competitive swimmer, I'm very determined to get things done. As a bricklayer, I am very hands-on and um, with a can-do attitude. And East Germany really was a relatively small country with very limited resources. And early on in life, I had to learn to improvise and to invent to make things work, which is a mindset that uh, stays with me to the day because it really feeds my curiosity about things around me. And also um, growing up between the 60s and 80s in Germany, was quite tumultuous times politically. It was the height of the Cold War um, where the U.S. stationed Pershing II on one side of Germany and uh, the Russians SS-20 on the other side of um, my Germany uh, preparing essentially for nuclear war. And uh, I get goosebumps when I talk about this actually because it is so... Uh, 
it is such a threat and it feels like you can't escape it. And then also growing up in East Germany, again, with limited resources, my parents grew a lot of food themselves. We had a little patch of land. Because we lived in a very industrial area, we grew a lot of food in pretty contaminated soil. Uh, and we determined that because one time when I was already at university studying civil and environmental engineering, I had to prepare a soil profile to just document what the soil looked like. And apparently I had an open cut and the next day my arm had swollen to a pretty dangerous size and it turned out to be blood poisoning from some heavy metal in the ground. And again, making this connection of your surroundings and the food that you grow, that you eat, it really shapes you. And uh, and so you, you think about all of those things, the, the water you drink, the air you breathe. And so you realize that you have a responsibility to take. There was also a joke uh, in former East Germany in the 60s and 80s. You still had cameras with a film inside, right? And and so instead of taking the film to a lab to be developed, we joked that you in East Germany can just dip it into the river because it was so polluted with mercury, including. So, you know, again, like you have so many things in your life that, that shape you. And that is just my own very personal story, including Chernobyl nuclear disaster one of the two uh, maximum level seven nuclear disasters and that really happened in my lifetime the other one was 2011 in Fukushima and uh, and again that's just my very personal my own very personal story all of uh, around us everybody has their own stories and their own experiences from water scarcity to challenges through the Kuwait uh, oil um, fields burning Bhopal in India um, and the uh, the whole Lovejoy chemical disaster in the U.S. Uh, where Aaron Brockovich, the movie, is based on. And, and the list is going on, and that happened already in our lifetime. And now realizing climate change, global warming is happening on top of it. Again, COVID is probably part of that. As in precursor, we need to ramp up our actions. So... You've been interested in sustainability since the very beginning. You studied environmental engineering. What inspired you or what motivated you to get into this field? What really motivate, motivated me to study civil and environmental engineering was the location of the university in Rostock, which is uh, on the Baltic Sea. Having grown up in a very industrial area in the middle of East Germany and being exposed to a number of pollutants at the time, I just wanted to breathe fresh air. And so I picked the place before I picked the field of studies. I knew that I wanted to do something in construction, in engineering, um, again, hand, being hands-on having just finished my bricklaying degree, I, I wanted to be um, in, in a field where you can actually work with your hands. I have the sense of accomplishment and the sense of purpose and it's always nice to get things done and to see the fruit of your work as well. And so civil environmental engineering in Rostock was uh, a perfect fit. Nice. Um, so what did you do right after university? I studied from um, 87 to 92 and right in between the Berlin Wall 
came down. So the, that kind of like uh, precludes the happy ending of my childhood was uh, thanks to Mikhail Gorbachev is that we did not have nuclear war. Um, and uh, Germany is united right now. So in 89, I uh, met my husband uh, just a week after the Berlin Wall came down. I met my husband who was in Hamburg on the other side of the wall, basically. And um, uh, we both were still in university. So he finished his studies in physics. I finished my studies in um, environmental engineering. And in 92, we both moved to the United States and, uh, and we lived there. And that was another way to being introduced to um, environmental uh, impact around you because we moved into an apartment and we had to sign a letter of, of indemnification because there was possibly lead paint and, and so we had to sign our life away if there was uh, some uh, lead poisoning based on that and uh, you know it's just kind of like the question arises what is around us are we even aware of what is around us you know what uh, water we drink what air we breathe and uh, what things are we exposed to and whose job is it really to clean that up or to make it safe for us how different was the U.S. compared to Germany? In environmental terms, you mean? Either in your personal life or in the in environmental terms. I mean, moving from East Germany, basically, um, after the wall had come down to, to the United States, was threatening and exciting at the same time because, you know, all of a sudden I experienced freedom that I never knew before. <laughs> so it was kind of an awakening moment really in my life. And uh, and so um, being part of uh, a whole movement then also in the United States, I mean, lots of people have worked on environmental matters. So I joined an organization called Clean Water Action um, because it was just one of those things where I felt very strongly about, you know, I had just studied with and focus on water and and so uh, canvassing and advocating for clean water and going from uh, home to home was a fascinating experience for me because it meant I met regular normal people who may or may not have had issues with clean water supply and their perception about it and approaching them with a German accent you know what are you doing here and why are you here and uh, why is why are you going to university and my children cannot get into university things like this so there was um, quite an interesting way of finding my ground and uh, and settling down in my which became my new home for 20 years. So in the U.S. you did a lot of consulting work and you were a lecturer. Could you tell us more about the projects that you did and what classes you taught at like Harvard and UPenn? The consulting work that I did was with an environmental consulting company and it was mostly after oil spills really in the ground and uh, based on my interest in environmental engineering but also with a big joy for gardening, I early on really decided on making use of uh, ecosystems for cleaning things up. And when you when you look at um, oil spills, for instance, oil is an organic matter, right? And uh, the soil and the water is basically uh, soil, really. The soil is full of uh, microorganisms and they just eat up the organic matter. The only um, limiting factor is oxygen in the ground. And and so when we realized this, just, just pumping oxygen air from the atmosphere into the ground to provide 
provide oxygen for bacteria to eat. That was one part where we realized uh, it's relatively easy to use functional ecosystems to clean up. I also did uh, water treatment very similarly on some landfills, for instance, um, where we built a cascade uh, where the water just fell over a cascaded um, design, basically erading it, kind of, you know, just uh, uh, introducing air into the water itself to react with whatever the material was in the water itself and to combine it and to settle things out and to clean water this way. So these were a couple of things that I found fascinating and using constructed wetlands for wastewater treatment was another way of uh, really putting things together from an engineering perspective and a gardening perspective. And it was it was really nice because the perception is that if you live in a very dry climate you or in a cold climate, you can't use wetlands because it's a natural. But when when you actually create a wetland based on the biological, physical, and chemical processes, you can uh, use that to clean water. It's, again, bacteria that are just eating up the organic matter. Part of my work also was um, stormwater management. So living in Minneapolis at the time, we were near the Great Lakes in the Midwest of the United States. And uh, stormwater runoff from new developments, from really dense developments, was a big issue because it meant that dust and pollutants from the urban areas was washed into the rivers and the lakes with a great detrimental impact. And so, again, using landscapes to retain water, to filter water first, had a big impact. And when I was invited to first teach at the University of Pennsylvania, it was just a guest lecture by somebody who was teaching a course there. And the students were so fascinated that they requested that I teach my own class. <laughs> and uh, and so I had to put together in very short time a whole class on which I then called um, ecological landscape design for watershed protection because it was, again, all about using landscape design and the soil uh, as a medium to clean up water that uh, becomes a resource rather than a nuisance or something bad. And, and so that's what I taught in both universities. Nice. How did you like the experience of teaching? I am probably at my happiest when I do all three things at the same time. Doing consulting work to really have practical work experience that I can share with students and then also writing about it. So those three outlets of uh, of working has a very positive impact on me as well and on my psyche. Um, because students really appreciate hands-on experience and practical experience to make things work and break things down from a rather abstract point of view into some um, personal action. And that's what I helped them to do, especially when you work with design students, University of Pennsylvania and also Harvard University Graduate School of Design. The design students have very little technical training and they were all reluctant to take my course in the beginning because they thought I'll try to make engineers out of them, right? <laughs> and uh, what happened is that 
we really started to build a technical literacy that helped them also communicate with engineers because designers were were very hesitant and when it comes to technical solutions very insecure it's just not their domain landscape architects usually design pretty places and we the course on ecological landscape design for watershed protection was really about okay you have a piece of soil length width depth and if you if the soil is regular soil that's usually 30% of porosity that means if it rains you have length by width by depth by 30% and that's the amount of water that this place can hold and if an engineer tells you you can't do that you just show them that calculation it's not very uh, particularly complicated and so it took them a while to really adapt to that so I made them calculate water retention capacities for their landscapes so that they actually really can stand up and defend their designs to combine again ecological landscapes or ecological function for something that is important for an infrastructure design. Using something beautiful that costs less, that is more beautiful and has a positive contribution to a community and is a better design. I really like the confluence of all these disciplines to create like a beautiful, practical and sustainable product. And I think the environment is like unique in that way because it requires people to have a lot of multidisciplinary thinking. It, it definitely requires to think in a system. And, and that is something that we've tried to teach really that, you know, for instance, diabetes and obesity is not going to be cured in a doctor's office. It's going to be cured on the farm. It's going to be cured in our grocery stores. It's cured in our kitchens. It's cured in schools, in our communities. And, uh, and so because you have to understand if you have health healthy soil, you can grow healthy food. And if you have healthy food, you have a healthy body. And a healthy body is a healthy mind, is a healthy economy. That is systems thinking in <laughs> systems thinking 101. Um, and if you, if you don't understand that uh, very complex systems can be broken down into very simple steps, then it's difficult to really miss the point. And I think part of the uh, danger right now where we are in with our uh, climate crisis right now is that people still think I don't have to take action and it is not my responsibility and I think we can't be further from the truth. You know there are certain times in human history where the generations alive actually have a duty and are called upon to perform some heroic deeds and I think we face that particular time in our current moment right now with global warming and climate change and our human progress and possibly our survival really depend on our actions right now and taking responsibility for that. I love that you're talking about individual responsibility because it connects perfectly to your work <laughs> at Sustainable Qatar. Um, so let's start talking about your move from the US to Qatar. When was that and how was that like? 
So I'm one of those typical accompanying spouses. <laughs> my husband uh, teaches at Georgetown University and then I followed my husband. He had the academic appointment. I was the environmental entrepreneur and I thought there is absolutely no problem for me to find work in Qatar because clearly this country needs me. And so I had pursued a lot of different um, opportunities because you look around and again the, the potential is vast of what can be done. And aside from working on the World Cup program to really help define and create the sustainability and innovation strategies for the whole program to make this a carbon neutral FIFA World Cup. I early on joined uh, Sustainable Qatar, which at the time really was a group of five individuals who really wanted to make an effort to live more sustainably. And when it comes to sustainability, it's a very abstract term. It means different things to different people. And the first thing that comes to mind uh, for most people is recycling. And, uh, and so that's what the uh, five individuals were really focusing on. What can I do with the plastic, with the glass, with the paper that we accumulate here on a daily basis? And that's what the focus at the time was. And when I joined, we... Uh, we shifted a little bit because we wanted to first grow Sustainable Qatar to a platform where people can join and see an impact and uh, and also contribute in, in many ways. And so we think we need to build up on the supply chain and the value chain. We cannot only focus on recycling. We need to work our way up to find solutions at the source so that at the end, recycling and beach cleaning is obsolete because we actually don't even start with something that's uh, impacting the environment in a different way. And, and so that's where we have morphed to transition to, to focus on individual actions that empower the individual to make personal choices that really contribute to a cleaner and, uh, and healthier personal health and also to in planetary health. Two questions. Could you tell us more about the consulting work you did with FIFA? And then could you tell us how you got the idea for Sustainable Qatar? My contribution to Sustainable Qatar was to um, grow it into a platform where people could join um, we invited uh, presenters from the entire community, locals and expats, to talk about their field of uh, practice. And some of our presentations, monthly meetings, were about recycling, some were about air quality, some were about uh, water. And some of my favorites really also were from local uh, Qataris, who one was talking about bees and the importance of bees um, pollinating and uh, producing honey, apiary bees, um, and then one of uh, our guests was talking about the importance of uh, falconry as a part of the heritage in Qatar. And uh, we also had one presentation on the whale shark project. So there is a great variety of things. And we really took this uh, organization from a small group of uh, determined individuals to more of a platform that grew into a group of over 300 people now that have access to or everybody really has access to our website but um, who sign up and commit to personal actions. 
So in my consulting uh, part, while I lived in Qatar, Qatar was awarded the uh, hosting rights for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. And uh, and so at the time I applied for the position of uh, Associate Sustainability Director um, with the focus really to help create a program-wide sustainability and innovation strategy, which was fascinating work because the World Cup is the first ever carbon-neutral FIFA World Cup that uh, Qatar committed to. And, uh, and so every innovation was informed by sustainability. It was all about reducing carbon, cutting out carbon from production processes, from construction processes, from materials to everything else. And it was just really fascinating to work with all of those individuals together. Our team was coming from all over the world. A number of people came from 2012 um, London Olympics. So it was it was a number of fresh ideas that came together and uh, really a melting pot of ideas that we put together. And that was um, just a three-year contract to get those strategies into place. And now somebody else is implementing it. I think the Gulf region is very unique with its sustainable problem because on the one hand, we're the most climate stressed region. Once the impacts of climate change occur, this place is most vulnerable to it. But at the same time, it's a rentier economy, um, which requires like oil and gas to fuel it. And that also helps with like its international relations because the US really cares about like security and ties with the Gulf because of their oil to some extent. So Qatar like really needs to diversify and it's just so nice to hear that they've been working so hard with sustainability with the FIFA project. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us like in what ways do you think Qatar needs to improve or like work on more for in terms of sustainability. That's an excellent observation. I mean, for one part, I live here for 12 years, so I have seen a lot of change. You have seen a lot of change and everybody else as well. So the potential is definitely there and the opportunities are there. There's a lot of funding that goes into the private sector to actually do all that. We at Sustainable Qatar, we really see ourselves as a catalyst for climate action to help reverse global warming starting in Qatar. And we try to do this through um, information sharing, community engagement, collaboration, because we want to see within our lifetime a more sustainable Qatar where the power of personal action and informed consumer decision really change and transform behaviors and contribute to a regenerative uh, economy. And what does it actually mean? What does regenerative economy mean? It's, uh, you know, those big words. And to demystify that, we really think that the individual, we are all individuals first. We decide what we eat, how we dress, how we get from one point to another, how we clean our homes, and we have power. We make daily decisions about what those things are. And going to a grocery store, and if you were to just consciously look around, you would notice that there is more plastic right now probably than there is groceries. And just this simple realization offers a number of opportunities. 
What I find so exciting is that plant-based plastics, for instance, or seaweed farming, for instance, as food or plant-based uh, diets have a big impact on our own health, our well-being, our mental health, our mental performance. And only if we are healthy bodies, we are healthy minds, we can become CEOs of companies that have ideas how to create healthy products that make money. It is not about an altruistic kind of way of living. It is about doing things a lot cleaner and contributing not only to solving the sustainable development goals, but to really creating an environment, an economic environment that is sustainable. U.S. President Roosevelt in 1934 said, for instance, for us in pursuit of well-being and economic wealth, we either all go down or we all go up. But it's not a zero-sum game. And I think, again, the opportunities uh, in business are so vast that creating healthy products is, is something that uh, we can definitely contribute to. I love that you said that. Like, people do think climate change is like a very zero-sum game where it's either the economy and money and development or sustainability and actually changing our structures to make the world more sustainable solves a lot of other problems like racism, inequality, the re like a lot of the refugee crisis. And so it's just if there's one problem you have to pick to focus on, it should be this because of the compound effect that it has on other things. How long do you think it'll take for people to really start changing in a way that has meaningful impact? Everybody is different and everybody has different priorities. For me, for instance, is what is very important is how I eat because I can see the immediate impact of my mood, my health, uh, my physical appearance. My skin, <laughs> I can see this in the mirror. For other people, this may be more difficult because committing to a healthy diet is definitely time-consuming. It requires um, a lot of resources in terms of knowledge. But that is precisely what we are trying to do with Sustainable Qatar, with those um, individual actions. So one of our flagship programs is the 52 Weekly Challenges, which is one challenge per week for a whole year based on monthly themes. Again, where we as individuals have direct decision power. We don't need anybody's uh, commitment. We don't need anybody's permission. We as individuals decide what we're going to do and what we consume. And so it is different for everybody. But if anybody, everybody makes small changes in their lives that are important to them, whether it is water consumption, whether it is um, gardening and composting, whether it is uh, transportation. We don't have, in Qatar, clearly we don't have too many options when it comes to transportation. We are all very car dependent. But then there are things, again, like what we eat and, and how we dress and, uh, you know, how we, it has an impact on how we think. And, uh, and so creating new products, healthy products, is something we can absolutely do. So it can it can be, as uh, you asked, how long it takes. It can be immediate. If, uh, if people just understand 
the impact of their own actions on their own health and uh, the larger health of the planet we can roll right away <laughs> it doesn't take very long but to your question how long it might take to change something reducing carbon emissions is no longer enough to do what we really have to focus on is um, drawing down the existing carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere right so when we do create our weekly challenges for instance we are not only pointing out how it reduces carbon emissions but actually some of them like gardening in creating healthy soil and composting is how you can draw down existing carbon emissions from the atmosphere itself because that is really the most important part. So we link all of our challenges to uh, what we call what is called project drawdown and project drawdown is so exciting. It's uh, the 100 existing solutions to reverse global warming and the emphasis is on existing solutions. We don't need new technologies, we don't need new products, we need to focus on things that we already have at our disposal. And, uh, and so when we think about costs, for instance, associated with uh, changing or reversing global warming, people always say it's too expensive. But with conservative estimates, Project Drawdown put out a number that is just $29 trillion for the next 30 years. That is less than $1 trillion per year for the next 30 years. If we compare this to, or if you, for instance, compare this to the uh, global GDP, you know, 55% of the global GDP is dependent on healthy ecosystems and biodiversity. That's about $42 trillion a year. And if you invest only $30 trillion over the next 30 years, that means you have a net saving of $44 uh, trillion. And also compared to military and defense budgets, we spend $1.6 trillion a year to rage war. So it seems that it's a lot less expensive to repair our environment on which our survival depends rather than raging war. I really liked that you said we don't need new technology. So I have to ask you now, like, what's your opinion on geoengineering? Two, I, I, I've been listening to a few speakers talking where, who said that our understanding of security needs to change. Where it isn't supposed to be this militaristic war kind of term, but it needs to mean protecting people from famine, from climate change, from racism and other issues. So what do you think about these two things? I'll start with the second part first. And simply because as an entrepreneur myself, I see, again, great potential in really using ecosystems, functioning ecosystems for wealth creation. And so if you realize that your wealth creation could be with functioning ecosystems, you would be able to keep people where they grow up and where they have their families, where they have their community and support systems without creating this massive migration globally out in pursuit of better economic situations. But people can actually create those within their own communities. And just looking, for instance, I work as a mentor. One of my activities is as a mentor for Cambridge University's Bridges for Enterprise. That's a program that matches real-life 
experts, if you want to call them, with young entrepreneurs who are just starting up their businesses. And for the last three years, I've been working with a young entrepreneur in Africa who is really working on creating healthy soil. And if you have not watched the movie Kiss the Ground, you absolutely need to watch the movie Kiss the Ground because it is such an it's a documentary movie and it is a fundamental or an explanation of the fundamental complexity of all of the things from our atmospheric uh, global warming and co2 emissions to the functions of the bi biome within the within the soil itself and how just creating healthy soils by improving only our soils by 2% with uh, organic matter we could we could do a lot of good in in the world again reversing global warming and uh, and so working with this young person and small scale farmers and uh, helping them understand that if you keep your soil healthy with manure if you keep the soil covered with cover crops so that they are less vulnerable to erosion or to infestations by pests you know you you can create your own wealth right here but wealth creation has to be redefined because as of right now, wealth creation is only monetary. It is based on profits and it's based on money. But clearly that kind of capitalism is not fit for purpose because we have put ourselves into a corner where the products that we produce and the services that we provide are not accounting for the externalities that it actually creates. So none of the very rich and successful companies right now would be profitable if they would be responsible for all of the externalities that they're creating. And so capitalism as it is practiced right now is on its way out <laughs> and that's not that's not my opinion actually that I'm, I'm just reading a book right now called uh, Green Swans by John Elkington uh, and the subtitle is The Coming Boom of Regenerative E-Capitalism Green Swans by John Elkington The Coming Boom of Regenerative Capitalism and it's exciting again because when we look at redefining wealth creation and putting wealth basically on on ecological functioning and functioning ecosystems, all of our investment would go towards just that, conservation and, uh, and restoration of our ecosystems. So by default, we would only create things that would be net positive from an uh, environmental perspective. And I think that is where capitalism needs to move to in order to survive. And that is exciting because it connects the environment with economy and inequity uh, as well and uh, and that's how it's going to work and that's how it's all going to be better <laughs> one day okay so we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and i've read a lot of articles which talk about the similarities between covid19 and climate change so could you tell us more about that well i don't know much about um, the articles that you're referring to, but from just a very personal opinion, I'm usually flabbergasted, I would say, when people say, I can't wait until this is over so we can go back to normal. And to me, SARS, um, MERS, COVID, these are all precursors and also 
indications that our atmosphere and our world is just sick. And part of it is because of encroaching on um, habitat, the interaction between humans and animals that was just not supposed to be this way. And really, it's probably one of our last wake-up calls to really make a change. Not going back to business as normal, as usual, but to really change in ways how we do things and doing things differently. And what I mean by this is, is not taking away conveniences or uncomfortable lifestyle, because I think that all can be done even with new products and with new approaches, with changing to uh, renewable energy, changing to things that we eat that we again dress ourselves and and how we just conduct ourselves on a daily basis and when we do those changes once or twice or three times a day every day the growth and the change is exponential and i think that is exactly where everybody's superpower lies because we do have an impact it is not for us to wait for somebody to make it safe for us but for us to realize that our action has an impact on how I feel, how I can compute with my brain, and what I can do with that in terms of performance and contributing to a society that is healthy on all fronts of capital, not just uh, financial capital, but intact human capital and intact human ecosystems, and that is capital as well. Do you have anything to say to the audience members and the youth? Well, first of all, thank you, Natasha, for having me on your podcast. It's an honor to share our story and to share some of the work that we do because we believe that, uh, especially with Sustainable Qatar, Building a participatory society, a new form of governance in the Middle East itself is very challenging and it requires everybody's participation. <laughs> and uh, and so what, what we would like to communicate is that we... Um, we really invite everybody to participate, to be conscious about all of your daily actions and to pick a few that seem right for you and to do things as we help you to do. Our 52 weekly challenges are really designed to build on each other, to find ways to live more healthy for one and to be a contributor of a healthy environment within Qatar itself. If there's anybody out in the audience who's listening, I mean, one of our uh, biggest challenges as a volunteer organization in Qatar is that need to really incorporate as a legal entity. So that is one challenge that we have from a an, from an, uh, legal perspective. But also if anybody feels strongly about supporting the cause, and it's not from an altruistic perspective, but really to work alongside a committed team to turn this into also a sustainable organization that once all of us leave, we can actually hand it over and transition it to somebody locally who has better ideas and other ideas uh, to continue the effort and live, create this legacy for Qatar where everybody can be healthy and happy. <laughs> I really like that. Thank you so much, Katrin, for taking your time and sharing your very interesting insights with us. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. To our audience members, 
Thank you for tuning in and please be sure to check out more episodes. Thank you.